This is a free download from the Lancy Eden Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in the Lancy Eden Church building of the bank of Inception in the Challenger Island of Sandwich. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at thelancyeden.co.uk. be thinking today how lovely it is that my parents have come along to support me. They're here and um, yeah, they, don't, they don't need a clap. No, they don't need a clap. <laughs> um, you might be thinking how sweet, you know, they're very supportive. Actually they're not here to support me at all. Um, what they're here for is uh, to make sure I don't speak for too long. When I see them go like this, I know it's time to end. So that's why I've got them here. Uh, no, it's nice that, nice that they've come along. Um, just before I start, I just wanted to um, just share a little, for a mini moment, uh, just about what John said a couple of weeks ago uh, about me coming back on the leadership team. And um, I've been off of the leadership team for a few years now. I know time just shoots by, doesn't it? Um, some of you may be thinking, have you? I didn't even know. But anyway, <laughs> I have been. And um, I've come back on it, and, and John mentioned that uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, oh, thank you very much. Um, but I just wanted to clarify what that means. Um, I'm on it because I've been asked by Elin to just represent international missions in the Channel Islands. So really just to work with Eldad and with Varzon and with Elin Rock in Jersey and ourselves to think about missions and uh, to just go forward in missions and, and think about our giving and trips away and all those sorts of things. So that's kind of why I've been brought back onto the leadership team in that capacity rather than um, assistant vicar again, assistant minister, so, you know, I'm not as important as Andy and Nigel and Tim and John and all them lot. <laughs> no, no, I know my place, don't worry. So I just wanted to share that with you, so that's exciting, and um, I thank you that um, you've allowed me to do that, which is great. Okay, so I want to share um, this morning about uh, a very familiar Bible passage, a Sunday school classic. Now, the problem is with um, the Bible, sometimes we do get really familiar, don't we, with certain parts of Scripture. We think we know everything there is about that particular thing. I got caught out the other day at school, and I was chatting to my colleague, and, and we were talking about Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats story. And we were having a debate, and I said, it, I said there was this part of it, and he said, no, there wasn't, and I said, yes, there was. Anyway, he loved the challenge and said, well, I'm going to beat the vicar at this. And uh, he got the Bible out. And we had a look, and actually he was right. Um, what I thought was in there was not actually in there. And I thought I knew the sheep and goat story pretty well. Um, and I had to eat humble pie and say, well, okay, yeah, you're right. But I think when I read the commentary, I think it might have been in there. I played that card. Um, anyway, so we can get really familiar, can't we, with Scripture? But you know what I love about the Bible is this, is that whenever you read it, whatever you read, even though you've read it a hundred times, you can still see something new in it. And um, I'm going to talk about the Good Samaritan today. How many times have we heard the Good Samaritan? How many times have we acted it out in Sunday school? Anyone got that? No, maybe not. Um, but, you know, we can be quite familiar with this. And I was looking at it again and just reading some stuff by this guy called Kenneth Bailey, who is 
um, slowly becoming my new hero. But um, he opened my eyes again to this passage, and I really wanted to share that with you. So if you've got your Bibles, can you turn to Luke 10, verse 25 to 37? And we'll read this together. Okay, it says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, Jesus that was, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now what's really important when we read scripture is that we think about how it was written in the day. We can read scripture through our own culture and through our own experiences and through our own eyes and we can get something from it. But there is another level, another depth more detail, more subtleties to grab a hold of when we read it in the way and we see it in the way that the Jewish audience would have seen it back then. So I want us, like I often say, to put on our Jewish hats today. See it as a first century Jew would have seen this story. Hear it in the way they would have heard it. Because this is what I love, love about Jesus' parables, is that They're just so full. They're just so amazing. You know, Jesus never says anything by mistake. His words are always purposeful. You know, when I'm teaching sometimes, I go off on a big tangent. I'm all over the place, which the kids love. But um, my words are random. And sometimes I'm just like, well, what was I saying? Jesus is never like that. Everything has a meaning. And that's what's so amazing about the parable. So I want us to think today like a first century Jew, to see it in the way that they would have seen it. So the lawyer begins this dialogue with Jesus. And he's saying to Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus throws back the question to him. And he answers correctly because he says, to love God with all my heart and my soul and my strength and my mind and to love my neighbour. And Jesus says, yes, yes, you've answered correctly. But he takes Jesus a little bit further and he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbour? And so Jesus gives us this amazing parable. And I want us to think today, where do we fit in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Where can we find ourselves? There's so many characters in this story and I wonder whether we can identify with any of them. 
And on closer inspection, I think if, if we look at the characters of this story, we will see that it's as relevant for us today as it was back then. Now, this parable is split into seven scenes. I would like us to go through those. So scene one is this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So the robbers had taken everything from this man and, he, and, and had injured him, had been violent towards him. Now we assume that the man who had been wounded and injured is a Jew. He's a Jewish man. And he's left half dead at the side of the road. Now in the Middle East, if, the, if robbers came to rob you and you resisted, they would be violent towards you. So we kind of get the impression here that this Jewish man, unfortunately, would have tried to resist being stolen from and been beaten up as a result. And he's left there. Now, perhaps you've never thought of it like this before, but I wonder whether this, these first characters, the robbers, whether we can identify with them at all. Have we ever seen ourselves in this role? Now, when I ask myself that question, I feel a bit shocked. You may too think that. Well, no. I'm, no, I don't identify with robbers. I'm not a robber. Um, I'm not going to steal from somebody. I'm not going to go and beat somebody up. Even if I tried, I don't think I could. Um, we don't identify with that. We say, no, 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 that, that wouldn't be us. Well, maybe not in that way. Maybe not stealing or beating people up. But you know what? I wonder sometimes in my own life, whether with my words and whether with my actions, have I ever wounded anybody? Have I ever stolen somebody's joy, taken peace or happiness from somebody? Have I ever been negative? Do I ever go into situations and say things that I really know I probably shouldn't say, it's going to damage somebody, it's going to hurt somebody. And I think about my own life and think, well, is there anybody that I'm robbing from in a way, stealing from in a way? It's a difficult question. It's an awkward question, perhaps, but I think nonetheless it's an important one. Because, you see, we are called as Christians to develop fruits of the Spirit. We're called to have fruits of joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, goodness and self-control and faithfulness and how many more are there? I don't know. Sounds like a good list. But we're told that we should bring those things into the situation. And sometimes I know I've walked away from situations where I think, actually, you know what, I haven't been all I should be in that situation. We should be people who reflect the King reflect the beauty of Jesus. When we're with people, what are we doing? What are we saying? Do we ever cause negativity? Do we ever cause hurt? Do we ever wound with our actions and with our words? And maybe even our inaction, our not doing, our not saying, our being silent, our not giving, can be wounds to people's lives. So maybe there's a sense that we sometimes could identify with the robbers, perhaps. Now, scene two brings on a new character. We've got the priest. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw, he passed by on the other side. Now, in the temple in Jerusalem, there's three classes of people. You've got the priest, you've got the Levite, who was the assistant to the priest, and you've got the Jewish layman. And the priest is on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Many priests lived in Jericho in the first century. 
And what would happen is they would journey to Jerusalem for a couple of weeks for like an assignment to go to the sacred temple in Jerusalem, almost a bit like when we send our ministers to the conference. It's that sort of thing. The priests would go up from Jericho to Jerusalem, spend a couple of weeks there, and then journey back down. And the people listening would have assumed that was what was happening here. That's what the priest had done. He'd just been up to Jerusalem for this assignment and was coming back down. And the priests were wealthy. They were the elite of society at the time. They were the high ones. So it's very unlikely that the priests would have been walking the 17-mile walk from Jerusalem to Jericho. Because he's wealthy enough, he will have been riding. And the people listening to the story would have clocked that. So here is the priest riding down. He could have well helped this man. He had the transport to pick up the man and help him. But he chose not to. You see, there was a class distinction back then between the ethnic communities, much like we still have, I guess, today. And you could tell a person by their language and by their accent and by the way they looked, the way they dressed, so you would be able to fit them into the category of who they were. Now, the priest has a problem because what's happened is he sees this man, but this man's been stripped. So he's lying there naked, and he can't tell by his dress who he is. The man can't, can't speak, so he can't tell by his language or accent. He doesn't know exactly who this man is at the side of the road. Now, if he was a Jew and a law-abiding Jew, then, then the priest had a duty of responsibility to do something. He should do something. It's his duty as a priest to help and reach out. And the priest would want to do this if it was a Jew. He'd want to help. He'd want to do his duty under the law. But what was his duty? You see, he couldn't identify the man. Should I help? I don't know. It might not be a Jew. Or he might be dead. Now, if the man was dead and the priest went and touched him, the priest would be unclean and defiled. And that was really bad. They couldn't touch anything dead. And what would happen, he would have to go back to Jerusalem for two weeks to be ceremonially cleaned and purified again. And during that time, he wouldn't be able to take from the tithes and collect them. His family and friends couldn't do that either because of the association. He wouldn't be able to do his duties of giving to the poor. So that was a bit of a dilemma. He didn't want to touch a dead person. And if the man wasn't a Jew, no responsibility on the priest's part, not under the law anyway. He didn't have a duty of care under the law to the man if he wasn't a Jew. So he has a tough time. What do I do? What do I decide to do? Well, you know what? His purity, his ceremonial purity was too important to risk. So he continued on his way. He didn't want to risk being unclean, being defiled. So he chose to go. Even though he had the transport, even though he could have helped. And it got me thinking, you know, I wonder whether we are ever like that priest at times. Because helping people, giving of ourselves, laying down our lives, is a risky business. Risk and cost is involved. Now, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I have a guilty pleasure. Well, I have several. But I'm only going to share one of them with you today. And it won't get me into too much trouble. My guilty pleasure happens to be that I can't help but watch obsessive compulsive cleaners. Now, does anybody watch obsessive compulsive cleaners? You're all looking at me blank. Okay, well. It's ironically very obsessively compelling to watch it. Um, but basically, there's this show, and they gather these people who are really mad about cleaning, obsessive about cleaning. They like clean their houses like, you know, five, six times a day. 
much like myself, obviously. And they clean their houses, and they go and take these people who clean obsessively to houses that never clean, like ever. You know, you might think your house is a little bit dirty. These houses are like, you know, they've got dishes in the sink that have been there for a year. You know, they've got cat hair and animal droppings, and it's like an absolute chaotic mess. You must watch it. It's, it's really good. And um, they go in, these cleaners, <laughs> to clean up the houses to help these people because, you know, they've, they've got that way for all sorts of different reasons. But what's funny is these cleaners go in and you watch them walk into the room like this, you know, as if like, oh, I can't touch a thing, you know, I'm going to be contaminated. They probably would, actually. And uh, so they go in with these um, full all-in-one body things with a zip and a hood, yeah, and a face mask. Last week, he had a gas mask on. And um, they go in and, and they just don't want to be touching the mess, they don't want to be, t- you know, they're like this with stuff. In the end, it looks really great when they've, when they've cleaned it all out. I sometimes wonder in our lives whether we get so worried about staying clean. I don't mean necessarily physically, but maybe. But I mean worried about whether reaching out, helping others, giving, will affect us in some way. Because it's difficult, isn't it, to reach out into the mess of people's lives, into the dirt sometimes. It's difficult being in the uncomfortable place where we don't feel familiar, especially if, like the priest, we feel that we're going to get defiled in some way. You know, I remember when I was a full-time vicar in the UK and part of my duty was going around doing pastoral visits like you would. I used to go to many different homes and I never forget turning up to this one house and uh, I was working with a family in this, in this place and uh, the 15 year old daughter opened the door and she had long hair like me and um, she had completely got a shaved head completely shaved I was like wow great looks fantastic I said you know loving the new look I I didn't want to shave my head no my mum made me shave my head I was like oh okay and it quickly became apparent why so I walked into the house the 5 year old boy had his head shaved the 12 year old boy had his head shaved and the 19-year-old girl had her head shaved. All the children, no hair. I said, right, what's been happening here? And the mum said, well, we had an outbreak of head lice, so I just decided to shave their heads. I was like, right, okay, great, that was the easiest thing to do. Let's not bother with the shampoo, let's just shave all their hair off. Brilliant. As you can well imagine, I quickly said, this, this was just a pop-in visit. I wasn't staying for tea. <laughs> just seeing how everything was. It's all right, Bye. Um, I felt very uncomfortable. I didn't want to get head lice. Um, So I went in there. But equally, I felt extremely uncomfortable when I went to visit this very wealthy family, very very posh, very intelligent, wealthy family. And uh, everything was spick and span and, you know, just amazing house. And if you've ever seen Keeping Up Appearances with Mrs. Bouquet... And Elizabeth, it was like that scenario. I'm there with my teacup, you know, like this, worried about what to do, what to say, where to put it. Oh, God, I was out of my comfort zone. But you know what? Those two families became two of my closest families that I worked with and that I spent time with. And after a few visits, um, you know, I was part of the furniture in those places. But you know what? It was uncomfortable to begin with. And I had to look at my own life and break down my own prejudice 
and my own difficulty and my own barriers, my own fears, my own selfishness. I had to address those issues in my own life to go and meet the needs of other people and to break down those barriers. And actually, it became a joy to do life with them. But, you know, being a neighbor is a risky business. We risk being hurt. We risk being tired. We risk being misunderstood. We risk a lot. Sometimes I just want to stay clean. I just want to stay comfortable. I just want to stay wealthy. I just want to stay where I am. I know I do. I don't want to risk anything. And sometimes I'm even like the priests, and I'll go, you know what? I don't think even it's my responsibility. I'll just walk away. It's not my responsibility. Someone else can deal with that. But you know what? At the heart of the Christian message, it says, love God, love your neighbor. Simple. Love God and love your neighbor. The priest could have helped. He had the transport. He decided not to use it. I look at my own life sometimes, and I see, you know, I've got so much I can give to others but I fail at times. You know, I've got time. Not always lots of it, but I do have time. I have energy. Not a lot of it, but I do have it. I have wealth. I have education. I have skills. Not many, but a few. And so do you. We have things. We all do, but sometimes it's just too inconvenient for me. And often we don't use all that we have for the benefit of others. You know, Jackie talked about holding back this morning. Sometimes we just hold back from giving our all. I remember when I was a child, in desperation for my sisters not to find their Easter eggs, I decided to hide them under my pillow. I went to bed that night with them under the pillow. And, um, albeit to say, they didn't really resemble an Easter egg in the morning, but just a few bits. I must have been pretty young, or just pretty, I don't know. But anyway, I put them under the pillow and slept on them. And sometimes we can be, you know, so we can just hide our talents, our skills, our time, our energy away. Maybe not purposefully, but we can. And if we do that, we really miss the opportunity to do all that God wants us to do. We miss the opportunity of loving our neighbor and in doing so, loving God and showing God our devotion to him. You know, maybe I'm preaching to the converted because I look out at you guys today. And I see people, I see faces before me that have encouraged me with words, that have encouraged me with gifts, that have given to me when I've needed, have financially blessed me when I've gone on mission, have used skills in all the different elements in this church for service for God. I see that. I I can go on. I could name people. I see you guys. But I just wonder sometimes, is there more... Is there times when we can get a little bit priest-like? A little bit, I don't really want to risk that. I'm going to turn away from that. It's too risky. It's too risky to give because, you know, financially, I don't have a lot. It's too risky to help. It's too risky to encourage because I'm not sure how they're going to accept that. I don't know. Could we identify with the priest? Maybe we'll identify with this next guy, the Levite, in scene three. So likewise, a Levite comes to the place and sees him and passes by on the other side. Now, a Levite was a temple assistant of the priest. The Levite would have known the priest had gone before him. It could even be that the Levite was that priest's assistant going down, maybe. We don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But the Levite would have come down and thought, right, well, the priest has gone before me, and the priest didn't help. Well, the priest has set the president, so I'm not going to help. I'm the assistant to the priest. If I help this man, 
I'm going to upstage the priest that's gone before me. And that would bring insult to the priest. So actually, you know what? I'm not going to have the responsibility. It's not my responsibility to help this wounded man. The priest didn't help. I'm only the, the lowly assistant. I'm not going to help either. The priest might meet me tonight, and I would have helped this guy back down to Jericho, and that would have been a disgrace. I don't want people to look at me and think I know more than the priest. I don't want to be judged by other people about why I help or my motives for helping. Are we ever like the Levite? I'm so glad I'm getting older. Are you glad you're getting older? No, maybe not. It's not something you hear often, is it? You're always like, oh, I just want to be younger. I'm glad I'm getting older. You know I'm glad I'm getting older? The older I get, the more content I am. The older I get, the more I love my life. The older I get, the more secure I am, the less worried I am about what people think of the way I look and, you know, what I do and stuff. You went back to those horrible, awkward teenage years when you worried about everything. You worried about the way you looked. You worried about who you hung out with, where you hung out, what music you listened to, who was looking at you. Oh, it was stressful being a teenager. But now... We're not so worried. You know, I meet my nieces and nephews in town. They're growing up so fast. I always thought I would be the hip, young, cool aunt. But apparently not. (laughs) After all I have done for them. Now, when they see me in town and they're with their mates, they don't want to come up and hug me anymore. Oh, no, it's like, hi, Auntie Nick. Hi, Auntie Nick. Hello. They're just too cool for school. They're just with their friends. They don't want to, uh, they're not bothered by me. The older I get, the less I care about things like that. Well, or maybe, or maybe not. You know, I certainly don't worry about what people think about my dress sense. Good job, you're probably thinking. Um, I'm not worried about what, what, what I, you know, people think about the music I listen to. I am very content with listening to my chanting Gagarian monks. And if you've never listened to that, you really should. Um, I'm really okay with listening to the arches on... BBC Radio 4. Um, you know, I don't get bothered about that. But, you know, if I'm honest, I still do care what people think. I'm still bothered about what people think about what I do and I say. And Actually, I do find I want to please people sometimes. It does get in the way. And I wonder whether we're like Levites, that sometimes we shy away from taking the opportunity to reach out because we fear what others might say. We fear what people might think. We fear of upsetting people or we're worried about being judged. We're worried about people questioning our motives. Like they're going to think like we're just too goody-goody or whatever. I don't know if you get that, but that idea of, you know, well, if I reach out and try and encourage someone, will they question what I'm doing? Will they think I'm really stupid if I do that? Sometimes we can be so concerned about what others think that we fail to realize that we need to love God and love our neighbor love God and love our neighbour. Scene four, the next person that comes is a Samaritan. And as he journeyed, he came to where the wounded Jewish man was. He saw him and he had compassion. Now remember, we've got our Jewish hats on. We're first century Jews. We're listening to this story. We've had a priest. We've had a Levite. The next person they would have expected to come along was the Jewish layman, not a Samaritan. Hold the phone. Shock horror. It's the hated outsider that comes along. Now, I can't describe to you enough how much the Jews and Samaritans did not get on. You know, it wasn't like a Jersey Guernsey bit of banter. We don't quite like each other. 
It wasn't like that. This was a Samaritan. Now the Jews listening are thinking, what? A Samaritan? That is just, you know, ridiculous. They could have probably accepted the story a little bit more if the wounded man had been the Samaritan and the Jew had helped him. And the Jew was a good Jew. They could sort of praise him even though he helped the hated Samaritan. But this is completely different. A Samaritan coming along to help the Jew well, that would have been blowing their minds. Not only that, because, you know, to add insult to injury, the two people that didn't help were Jewish, the priests and the Levites. So now we've got the Samaritan coming along. And in scene five, the Samaritan goes to him, binds his wounds, pours oil and wine on them. So the Samaritan goes to this Jew, he uses everything he's got to help the wounded man. Every available resource is used. He's got the oil, he's got the wine, he's got the cloth to wrap, he's got the animal to, to ride back, he's got time, he's got energy, he's got the money, he's got everything, and he uses everything on this wounded man. It's not always easy to give everything. If you're like me, sometimes I think I'm doing okay because I'm giving my time. Or I think I'm okay because I'm going to give my money. Or I'm okay because you know, I'll give my, my, my possessions or I'll, you know, somebody can borrow the car or whatever it is. But to give everything, all of those things at the same time, to give my wealth and my time and my energy and my possessions and all that I have, this Samaritan gave everything. I guess the situation was pretty desperate. It was pretty desperate and I suppose the Samaritan instinct kicked in maybe for him and he thought, you know what, I'll just give everything. I won't even think about it. I'll just give everything. There are times when that happens, when the situation before us, the need before us is so great that we don't really think, we just give. I remember a time when I was entrusted to look after my sister's beloved hamster. Now, this hamster was called Jabaka. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know why. Because he's very, very hairy. And this beloved hamster of my sister's um, was entrusted to me as she went away. And so I was cleaning the hamster out. I put the hamster in the bath, and the empty bath. <laughs> Just before you think, I'm killing the hamster. No, the bath was empty. I don't know if you ever used to do this with your pets when you clean them out. Put the plug in and put a towel and the animal in there so they couldn't escape. I'm getting blank looks. Right, okay, anyway, I put the hamster in the bath to clean the hamster out. It's clean in the cage like this. And suddenly, the hamster begins to move in a very weird way, okay? This little hamster is basically having a little fit in the bathtub. So instinct kicks in. Fortunately, I had my life-saving qualifications for hams. And I thought to myself, right, I've got to do something. What can I do? I've got to save the hamster. I've got to save the hamster. So spun the hamster on his back, little legs in the air. And I decided to give CPR, so I started on his heart like this. Keep doing that. Unfortunately, I saved its life. How good is that? I was amazed. I saved the hamster's life because my hamster, the hamster was my sister's beloved hamster. I had to do something. I had to intervene. And instinct kicked in, and I did all I could to save its life. And I guess we can be like that when... 
we see loved ones, when something's very important to us, when the people are important to us, the situation's important to us, it's our family, our friends, instinct kicks in and we give and we give whatever we've got. Perhaps when the need isn't so close to home, when it isn't quite people that we're close to necessarily, or it isn't in our faces, like it's not right there, then maybe we tend to forget about it a little bit more. If it's people, situations across the seas. But we are living in a world of desperate situation and desperate need. People's lives in turmoil, facing desperate situations, trials and difficulties. And we've been called to be like the Samaritan, to give everything, not just to those who are close to us, but to anyone. You know, this Jewish scholar writes that seeing a love that is free from seeking praise, a love which is willing to endure distress, a love that is willing to endure suffering and loss in the path of good works, which we see demonstrated in the Samaritan, in our world today is extremely rare to see. A love that has no strings attached, doesn't matter who it is, doesn't matter what their situation, doesn't matter what I'm going to get out of this. It's not about me, it's not about getting praise, it's not about anything. I might go through distress or suffer because of it, but just out of love for my neighbour. And the Samaritan was paying a really high price. He was giving his all into the situation. And scene six says this, then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, I don't know whether we're aware of this, but the Samaritan risked his life to save this man. He risked his life by transporting the wounded man to the inn within the Jewish territory. There was not an inn in that wilderness between Jerusalem and Jericho for him to take him to. He would have had to go back to Jericho, into the Jewish territory, to deliver this man. And the Jewish audience would have listened to this. They probably would have thought, well, he'll probably just drop him at the edge of Jericho and go off. Because if the Samaritan went into Jewish territory, more than likely he'd be set upon. doesn't matter whether he's helping the Jew or not. didn't matter. He was risking his life to go into the Jewish territory. And the, and the first century people listening to that knew that. This man wasn't just giving what he had there in the situation. He was prepared to risk his life for this man who was not his family member, his actual enemy. He was going to go into the Jewish territory. And that was just a normal thing. That's how much they hated each other. And so much so did he risk his life. It says in scene 7, and the next day he took out the two derony and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever more you spend I'll repay you when I come back. So the next day, so he spent the night there with the man in the Jewish territory and he's going to come back in a couple of weeks' time to check all's okay, all is okay. That money that he gave would have would have probably lasted about a week or two for food and lodgings for the man. So he was going to enter back in to that situation. The Samaritan doesn't give all that he doesn't only give all that he's got, but he risks his life. The Jewish community would not have thanked the Samaritan for helping. So he exposes himself to this potential violence. And the story is left open ended. We don't know what happened to the Samaritan. Jesus doesn't finish the story. So the Jewish hero can conclude what they like. They may well have concluded, actually, the Samaritan lost his life doing that. He would have been beaten up. He wouldn't have survived. That's quite amazing that Jesus is 
asking us to be like the Samaritan, risking it all. How much are we willing to risk to be the neighbour Jesus spoke about? How uncomfortable will we let ourselves become? You see, the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? The one who showed mercy, the lawyer said. Yes, Jesus said, you go and you do likewise. The question, you know, is never who is our neighbour. The question is, who are we to be a neighbour to? You see, the lawyer's question was a mistake. He said, who is my neighbour? But that was wrong. Because he's challenged to ask this, to whom must I become the neighbour? Not who is my neighbour, but to whom must I become the neighbour to? And the neighbour is the Samaritan. And both the Jew, Jesus and the lawyer identify this. Even though the lawyer can't bring himself to actually say that, I asked the question from the outset, who do we identify with in the story? Maybe it's the robbers. Maybe it's... Is this on? Okay. I asked that question, who are we? But you know what, you may be sat there today thinking, you know, I don't really identify with any. The robber, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. I think I identify with all of them in some way. But you may well be thinking, actually, you know what, the person I identify most with today, right now, in the situation I'm in, it's the Jew. It's the wounded Jew on the side of the road. Today, I really feel bruised. I really feel battered. I really feel wounded by my circumstances. Can I encourage you with this? For this parable is far more than just a story about us being the neighbour and reaching out. You see, Jesus speaks at another level through this story. And our great fathers of theology, Ambrose, St. Augustine, these great guys, they talk about this. They say that the Samaritan is a representation for Jesus. The Samaritan symbolises Jesus, the saving agent, breaking in through the, through, from the outside into the story binding up the man's wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, disregarding the cost of that salvation. Jesus' passion for you is demonstrated in this parable. And the Samaritan shows costly demonstration of unexpected love. He risks everything. He risks his whole life by going into Jericho, by transporting the man into into that Jewish territory, spending the night there. And the wounded man would never have been the same again. Completely changed, completely transformed. You know what? Jesus is here for you. Jesus gives everything for you. And he risked it all for you. And you may be at the side of the road today. You might be the wounded one. You might be the bruised, the battered one today, feeling, you know what? I just feel really distressed at this time. Well, can I encourage you and say this, this parable shows us this wonderful, wonderful picture of Jesus who reaches out to us wherever we are, whatever we're in, and says, come with me. I'll take you to safety. I'll take you to a refuge place. Sometimes, you know, we can be our own worst enemies. Can you imagine if the the wounded Jew in the the story, semi-conscious state, said to the Samaritan, no, don't, don't help me, thanks. No, I don't want any help. You just leave me here. You know, we'd be a bit shocked if he'd said that. 
You know, many of you know that um, I often head off to Italy or France on a ski trip with the school. Um, And I've done this a fair few times now. I take the students across skiing. And um, I go along in an attempt to ski. And I say attempt purposefully. Um, And to my shame, I've been four times skiing. That means I've been four weeks skiing. Now, I don't know how many of you ski. But by four weeks skiing, you should be in, in the advanced group. Okay? But I'm still in the beginner's group after four weeks of skiing. And last month, I went skiing again for my fourth time. And as I was packing, I thought, you know what? This time, this year, you know, I might actually be able to improve. This would be my year to ski like a pro. How mistaken could one be? (laughs) Three days into the ski trip, um, the instructor decided to take us on a red slope. If you know skiing, it goes baby... Green, blue, red, black. Okay, that's how they go up in levels. All right, black's the hardest. Baby slope is like basically this. Um, So I had been skiing around on the green and the blue slopes. I'm all right with that. I mean, I'm not great. I'm not going to lie. I'm not great, but I'm sort of okay. I can get down those mountains. He took us on a red, all right? Now picture the scene, if you will. I'm at the top of the red slope. The instructor is in front. 14 students between the instructor and me. I'm doing my diligent duty of the teacher, making sure safety is paramount and no child gets lost along the way. What I didn't realise that the the only safety I should have been concerned about was my own because they started to ski off. And I can only say it was like a ski Sunday pro watching them as they all shimmy down the mountain. And I froze at the top of this red slope. So I'm stood at the top on my own, everybody down the mountain looking up at me. I'm the teacher, I'm supposed to be the respectable one. And I just couldn't do it. I just went rigid. I I was like, there is no way I'm getting down there. And the problem with skiing is once you're up the mountain, there's only one way down. And you either ski or you slide. Okay, ski or slide, right? So I'm at the top of the red. And no joke, to me it looks like this. It, It looks like that. It probably wasn't. But it looked like that. And I'm at the top, and I'm thinking, I can't do this, I can't get down. And I thought, right, so, Nicole, pull yourself together, woman, okay? I gave myself a right talking to and decided that, you know, I had to, uh, I had to, I had to move. I had to get down this mountain. And I could hear the students at the bottom shouting, go on, Rev Lagoopolo. That's what they call me. They call me the Rev. Come on, Rev Lagoopolo, you can do it. So I'm stood there. I've got my posse down the bottom. I'm feeling a bit stupid, and everybody is watching me. All eyes on me. I should have just gone with them and, you know, all eyes on me. And so I start off tentatively going down, slowly, slowly. Well, that lasted for about a second, and then that was it. I was just coasting down the mountain, legs in the air, snow spraying in my face, skis and poles somewhere off in the distance, And I was just slid. And I came to a stop about 100 metres later. Now, 100 metres doesn't sound really long. It's quite long. When I was in it, it seemed like it went on forever. And I looked up, all this snow, to see my two male colleagues had skied down next to me. Absolute hysterical fit of laughter. (laughs) Thinking it was the funniest thing they'd seen forever. And... 
my dignity was somewhere in the forest over there. And I was, I was there, and I just couldn't do it. I just could not slip down the slope. And I, I wasn't even halfway down. I thought, well, at least if I was sliding, I could have just slid down the whole thing and got to the end, but I, I didn't. I was halfway down that mountain. So one of my colleagues um, decided to help me down. One of my colleagues was the guide and helped me, and I eventually got down that mountain. After that, albeit to say, they moved me down another group to the novices. So I went from beginners downwards to novice. It was a bad time. Anyway, so you know what? I would have been absolutely foolish to refuse help from my colleague. He was there to offer me help. I needed that, and um, I needed that guide. You know, there are times we find ourselves stuck, afraid, hurt, wounded, perhaps humiliated, downhearted. I could go on. How foolish it would be for us not to reach out for the hand of Jesus and to get close to him and allow him to help us. For he is willing. He's already risked it all. He's already paid the price. You know, at times... We're our own worst enemies because we refuse the help that Jesus has given us, the promises. We forget about them. And we're so quick sometimes to trust in all other things, all sorts of other things, all sorts of other people before we go to God and trust in him. Let me just say one more story. You know, when I went to Ghana um, a long time ago, I remember visiting Ghana and um, we went to this pond area, this lake, and forgive me if I've told you this story before, but we went to this lake, and um, it was in the middle of nowhere, and me and my friends decided to go and investigate. It was a hot spot for crocodiles, and uh, so cautiously we went down to this lake, river thing, I can't pond, I don't even know really what it was, this swamp-like place, and we followed the guide, there was a guide there, so we followed him. Now, you follow the guide cautiously in these sort of situations. That's a good thing. Now, you don't, what you don't do is you don't follow the guide when he says, it's perfectly safe to sit on the crocodile. It's perfectly safe to do that. It's perfectly safe to grab the tail of the crocodile. Now, this was what the guide told us. And um, so we thought, oh, well, okay, we're in Ghana. We'll do what the Ghanaians do. Okay, so we'll do it. You know, but it was a bit foolish of us because this guide was skinnier than me, shorter than me. He had flip-flops on and a bamboo stick. Okay, that was it, basically. Okay, and I thought, if this crocodile, well, I didn't really think at the time, in hindsight, if the crocodile had done anything, I'm not sure, maybe he had martial arts with the bamboo, I don't know. Maybe he could do lots of stuff. But anyway, it's just this little guy saying, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fine, sit on the crocodile. And all he had was a bamboo. So we did it. We proceeded to sit on the crocodile and hold its tail. I still have nightmares about that experience. I can't believe we did it. How ridiculous, how foolish to put our trust in this man who, you know, I don't think he'd have even been able to bat off a kitten, let alone a crocodile, if it came near us. But we're so quick to put our trust in all sorts of things. But, you know, the obvious choice surely is to trust Jesus. Because things let us down, people let us down. Jesus won't. You know, if you were feeling like the wounded Jew today... Can I encourage you to grab a hold of Jesus and grab a hold of his promises and let him transport you to safety. Let him take you to the refuge place. I'm going to finish here. Who are we in this story? Who can we identify with? Or who do we need to become? Maybe there's a bit of 
all of those characters within us. Perhaps we look at the robbers and we need to think to ourselves, you know, today, am I hurting anybody? Is there anything that I'm doing, any of my actions, any of my inactions, anything that I'm saying, my words, are they hurting anybody? Am I wounding anyone? We need to stop. Do we need to stop worrying about staying clean, staying comfortable, maybe taking a risk, getting messy? Have we talents? Have we skills? Have we finance? Have we got more than we can give? Or like the Levite, do we need to stop worrying what others say about us? Stop being concerned about the judgment. God's the only one we need to to worry about or an audience of one. Do we need to adopt a more Samaritan style, giving all that we have, risking it all, asking not who's our neighbour, but rather who can we be a neighbour to? Do we need a fresh revelation of Christ to know that he's given it all, he's risked it all, and he still is all that we need? You know, Christ is the saviour of our soul, yes, but that's a one-time thing. Christ is still the saviour for the situation you're in today. Whatever you're facing, he's still the saviour. I invite the worship group to come back. And you've listened to me really well because I know I've gone over time and I'm sorry about that. But I want us to pause for a moment and just take a few minutes to think about this story and think about it again perhaps in a new way and say, Lord, you know, I identify with some of those characters perhaps, and I really need this or that or whatever it might be, whoever you might identify with. And maybe we can just say a prayer in our hearts today to ask God to help us to be more like the Samaritan and to show us perhaps opportunities where we can be a neighbor, where we can demonstrate the love of God to people. Or maybe today you just need to quietly reach out to Jesus and ask him to help you in your distress, in your need. Maybe there's wounds that are running deep today for you, hurts and problems that you really need Jesus to deal with. And I want to assure you that Jesus wants to meet those needs. You know, as we read God's word, there is a promise in there for everything that we are going through. And Jesus reaches out to you today. He reaches out to you. He'll take you to the place of refuge and safety. Will we always feel really comfortable? No. Will the hurt just quickly go away? Well, maybe not. Will we be fixed overnight? Well, not necessarily. But Jesus will be with us. And we find peace in that and assurance in that. And we can find a safe place to be. Father God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the way that you spoke those thousands of years ago with such insight, such revelation. Lord, I thank you that we can look at this story today and again see something. And we can identify, I'm sure, with all of those characters as parts of our lives where we need to be more Samaritan-like, 
where we need to take the risk of getting ourselves messy or dirty. We need to take the risk of giving until it hurts. We need to take the risk of reaching out to people we may not even like. To take the risk of going further with our vision of of seeing people's needs around the world. To let go of our possessions. To let go of all the things that we hold so tight to. God, would you help us? Not to ask who our neighbour is, because everybody is. But to whom can we be the neighbour to? Give us those opportunities. Let us rely on you for our strength, I pray. And Lord, today I ask that we would do that all in the assurance that we are loved by you and that you have called us and that you are with us and that you take us by the hand and you walk through the valley with us. There is no valley too deep, no pit too deep, nothing so bad in our lives that you can't renew or redeem. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Help us to be more like you in all that we do. In your mighty name. Thank you for listening to this free download from Delancey Elam Church. For more downloads or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk.